Again, this evening I want us to continue with our quick overview of this uh, book of Lamentations and I want to look at this uh, second Lamentation with you uh, this evening, this second uh, Song for the Dead, this second ABC of mourning. You recall how we noticed last week that each one contains, or certainly one, two, four and five, contain 22 verses and uh, those 22 verses, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic um, poem. And uh, now those of you who were here last week will remember that we looked at uh, chapter 1. And as we read chapter 2, there may be a sense of deja vu, as they say. There's lots of similarity in the terms, in the language, in the pictures, and the intensity of what's written is very similar to chapter 1. And we may feel that once we've read one of these lamentations, we've read them all in a sense. But this is, of course, the Word of God, and each one is different, and there are uh, differences and points that we can draw uh, out of them individually. And so this evening, I want us to go through this chapter as we did last time and just highlight some of these uh, key elements and themes. And then at the end, I want to just draw out just one sort of aspect of um, application, as it were. Um, from this particular lamentation. And so, uh, as we go through this uh, together, just one other thing just to say, and that is, uh, as we were saying last time, we can look for Christ as we go through it. Uh, The whole book, of course, is primarily about Christ in that sense. He is uh, the man who was the man of sorrows, the one who was acquainted with grief. And uh, really, as we, we see that being all the way through this book, Christ and his anguish and his pain and his sorrow, the one who born, bore our sorrows when he died upon uh, the cross. And so I want to go through this really sort of verse by verse with you. And you'll notice in verse 1 there that uh, we begin again with the same word as we did um, in chapter 1 with this word how, which if you remember the book in the Hebrew is entitled that, How. And again, it's a how, not so much as a question, but a how of exclamation and surprise and shock at everything that's happened to the city. And Jeremiah begins here by saying, How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger? And we noted uh, last time that the prophet highlighted uh, the situation of the city and its, uh, all its calamity and destruction And he noted, didn't he, that it wasn't so much caused by the Babylonians, but it was caused by the Lord. And he brings this up again here. How hath the Lord uh, covered the daughter of Zion? And Jeremiah continues this theme all the way through to verse uh, 10, really. He's focusing on the Lord's punishment. And it's a devastating punishment. And you'll notice this repetition all the way down through these verses, that this is what the Lord has done. Verse 1, how hath the Lord covered? Verse 2, the Lord hath swallowed up all the habitations. Verse 3, he hath cut off in his fierce anger. Verse 4, he hath bent his bow like an enemy. Verse 5, the Lord was as an enemy. And you see this all the way down, verse 6, he hath violently taken away. All the way down to verse 10 is this focus on the fact it's the Lord that has done this. It's Jehovah. Um, Most of the times it doesn't use uh, the name Jehovah in that sense. It uses the smaller Lord, but you have it there in verse verse 8, the Lord Jehovah there has purpose. This is God who has done this. The covenant 
keeping God. And you get the idea, this continual repetition, you see that Jeremiah has his attention fixed on something, someone higher than the Jews and the Babylonians. He looks beyond the armies and the devastation and he sees the hand of God. It's him that has uh, done this. He sees the the one who's invisible, the, the invisible governor of every nation, of every person, the one who's controlling and directing every event in this world. And it's him that is sovereignly working out all these purposes and bringing about all this destruction and devastation, whether that's victory for one army and the destruction of a mighty city for the, the, the enemy or for the here for Jerusalem. And of course, friends, we should always have the same perspective, shouldn't we, when we look at the world's events. Um, it's not uh, so much what man is doing when we look at the situation in Ukraine and so on, but the Lord is behind all these things. He is sovereignly overruling. And we can take that with the pandemic as well, can't we? It's so easy to become focused on the earthly things, to look at the politics and you know, the nitty-gritty, the changes of rules and the, and the regulations and so on, and get caught up in the particulars and forget that it's the Lord that's doing this. It's the Lord that reigns. And Jeremiah says here in these opening verses, it's the Lord that's done that. And he says in verse 1 here, the Lord have covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He speaks here of the storm clouds, as it were, of God's wrath and they've shrouded the, the city in darkness. This is the Lord, of course, that we read in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3, that he has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And this language here, it reminds me of Exodus and the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. And you remember how the Lord went before the children of Israel by day in a pillar of clouds, and of course at night it was a pillar of fire. But when the Egyptians, you remember, came to pursue them, and you recall what would happen, you remember if you just turn with me to Exodus chapter 14, what happened to that um, pillar of clouds? Exodus uh, chapter 14, and uh, verses 19 and 20. It had gone in front of them, leading them, guiding them. But in Exodus 14 and verse 19 and 20, it says, And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them. But it gave light by night to these so that the one came not near the other all the night. And so here on this occasion, you know, to God's enemies, it was a cloud of darkness, but it was light to the people of God. And yet back here in, in Lamentations chapter 2, Jeremiah says that this, in a sense the situation's reversed. God is now a cloud to his people, and darkness, as it were, has come over his people. And I think we have here as well a sense and a sight of Calvary, don't we? Remember the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who was the delight of his Father, the one who we're told, you know, behold, this is my beloved Son. And yet there on Calvary we have those moments, of those hours of darkness. It's as if God shrouded Calvary with his cloud of his anger in darkness. 
And the one who was his beloved now becomes the one who faces his wrath. And the cloud of God's anger fell upon him and covered him. And this theme of God's anger is actually something that Jeremiah brings out uh, in a number of places through this lament. You look at verse 3, for example. He have cut off in his fierce anger. Or you can go to verse 6, and it talks there about the indignation of his anger at the end of the verse. Go down to verse 21, and it talks there about the day of the Lord's anger. And verse 22 uses the, the same expression there, the day of the Lord's anger. This theme of the Lord's anger is repeated through this lament. It's, a, it's a different from our anger, which is so often sinful. This is divine anger. This is a, a righteous anger. And Jeremiah says here, in, here that the daughter of Zion has experienced this wrath of God, this anger of God coming down as a, a cloud upon the people. In verse 2, he goes on to say, that he, and he has not pitied. He has not pitied. And again, there's another expression that we find repeated in this lament three times in this lamentation. You find it in verse 17 again. He says there that the Lord, again, is thrown down and hath not pitied. Verse 21, we see it again there at the very end of the verse, thou hast killed and not pitied. And uh, the people, you see, had abused God's mercy, God's grace, God's pity. And the Lord, Lord had warned the people, hadn't he, through Jeremiah particularly, that there was coming a day when his pity and his mercy would cease. If you just go back to Jeremiah uh, and chapter 13, he warns the people of this. Jeremiah 13 and verse 14. He says there, Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 14, And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but destroy them. The Lord had been so long-suffering with them, but they had provoked him and provoked him over and over again to his face. And in his anger, we read here in in verses 2 and and 5 that he he cuts, off his, he cuts off his pity and his mercy and he throws down and destroys the strongholds. Notice that there in verse 2. In his wrath he has thrown down the strongholds. You see it again in verse 5. He's destroyed the, the very places that were of safety and refuge uh, where the people would have fled in, in the time of trouble. He had taken them down. He'd utterly destroyed them. And it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that when God is angry, nowhere is safe outside of him. You cannot be safe from God who is a consuming fire if you're outside of his protection. And you can run to all the strongholds you like, but the Lord can remove them. And they found that. They found as they fled, they could find no protection and safety from the Lord's wrath and anger. And Jeremiah mentions this in verse 3, how he had burned against Jacob. He talks about this fire. And of course, remember that the Lord is a consuming fire, as Hebrews tells us. And we see again this reference to fire in verses 3 and 4, particularly of burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devoureth round about. 
And in verse 4, it tells us that he poured out his fury like fire. No wonder in Hebrews we're told it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living gods. That's why, of course, the time to embrace him in Christ is now. God extends his mercy, doesn't he, to sinners now. He says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And again, we see, I think here, a a reminder of what Christ endured. Christ endured that burning, that fiery indignation, didn't he, on behalf of his people. He felt the full intensity, as it were, of that fury, which is as a fire burning upon him when he was hanging upon the cross. Of course, it reminds us again of the sacrifices, doesn't it? And other, the burnt offering and so on. That's what the Lord, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, endured. And it says here that the Lord have cut off their strength in verse 3. He speaks about the horn of Israel. And the horn in Scripture is, a, is always a picture of, a, of strength. And uh, it says he's cut it off. He's cut off the things that, that they that were their strength, and he's burned against them. And he says there that he, in verse 4, that he had bent his bow like an enemy. And we see this picture here, don't we, of, uh, of God being like an enemy, pulling back his bow to fire at his people. And he uses the same expression again in verse 5, the Lord was as an enemy. And I think that's an incredible statement. We're talking here about God's covenant people. We're talking about the nation that God had so singly set his love upon. The ones that he'd so blessed. He'd given them his law. He'd given them his promises. He'd given them his covenant. But now it says he's like an enemy. You notice that Jeremiah is very careful with his language here. He was like an enemy. Of course, to God's true people, he can never actually be an enemy. Though, of course, he may and does at times afflict and chastise his people, and he corrects and deals with his people as a loving father, but he can never actually be an enemy to his people because of that wonderful covenant that they are in with and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's dealings with his people here in verse 5 had led to increased sorrow, you notice. At the end of verse 5 there, all of this, this fury of the Lord and so on, it increased the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. And of course, increasing sin will always lead to increasing sorrow. And then in verses 6 through to 9, we have uh, mentioned a number of the key features of the city. And uh, he focuses firstly in these first few verses on the, on the worship of God and the things that are connected to the worship of God. In verse 6, for example, he speaks about the tabernacle and it's been violently taken away. He mentions the solemn feasts and the Sabbaths. In verse 7, he speaks about uh, the altar, the place where sacrifice was made. But it says now he's, he's, he's even cast off the altar and he's abhorred his sanctuary. And again, we have to say this is remarkable language, isn't it? That the Lord should cast off his altar. Notice how there is repetition of his. It was his altar. It was his sanctuary. It was his tabernacle. And yet he's cast it off. And there's so many places in, in the Old Testament where the Lord promised that this would, this would be the very place he'd put his name forever. And yet now he says, no, I've, I've cast it away. 
Of course, this is what Jeremiah had warned the people of in chapter 7. You can read that uh, passage there, how he warns the, the people. You know, just because you've got the sanctuary, just because you've got the temple, don't think you're safe. He says, uh, see if I can find the verse... Verse 4, trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Are these The false prophets were saying, look, we've, we've got the temple, we've got the sanctuary. God said he's going to put his name there forever. He's never going to cast us off. But Jeremiah says he had violently taken away his tabernacle. Past privileges could not prevent present Judgments judgments had fallen even upon the walls and the ramparts, we read in verse 8, and the gates and the bars in verse 9. Such was the, the devastation of this city, everything's destroyed. Such was its devastation that we read in verse 10, the elders keep silence. These important statesmen of the city that were used to delivering you know, eloquent discourses, they now sit on the the ground in a sort of voiceless woe. I think it was Spurgeon who said, didn't he, that small griefs are often vocal, but great grief is dumb. And such was the grief of the, the people of the city that they just sit down. They haven't got a word to say. They girded themselves with sackcloth. They hang their heads down to the ground. And here we see how such was the grief of this place. But in verse 11, we then had a slight change because now Jeremiah speaks for himself. And here we see Jeremiah's reaction. He says, mine eyes do fail with tears. He'd wept and wept, as it were, till his, his tear ducts were spent. He had nothing left to give. His grief had left him utterly exhausted. His bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth. And... Uh, think we see here is Jeremiah's pastor's heart. Remember these were, the, these were the people who had caused him so much misery and so much heartache. They had disbelieved him, they had put him in prison, they had sought his life. But he doesn't now look on with an air of satisfaction, instead he sorrows. And, and the language here shows that he, he sorrows as if this was, this was his own son or his own daughter that has died. He looks on at the children in verses 11 and 12 there, swooning in the streets, dying in their mother's arms. As they come and they ask, you know, where is corn? Where is wine? They're, they're starving. They're, and these mothers are powerless to help. You know, as if their sorrow was not already so large, these mothers have to watch on helpless as, they, as their own children, their own fruit of their womb, beg for food. As Jeremiah looks on it, it moves him to tears. He says, there doesn't seem, my eyes do fail. Who for? For the daughter of my people. My people. He loves them. And in verse 13, he makes this, this point as he looks on, as he laments over the city. He says, look, is there, is there nothing in all of history that can compare to this? He can think of... In a sense, no greater example of suffering and pain and anguish. He just wants some example so that he might bring comfort to the people and say, look, well, you know, this happened before in the past, but, and look what's happened to them since. Look at the way the Lord has dealt with them. But he says, I can't think of anything so great. 
You know, what things shall I liken to thee, O daughter of Israel? What shall I equal to thee that I may comfort thee? I can't think of anything. And you see, he's, he has this, this sorrow. And again, I think as we look at that verse 13 particularly, we see a pointer here to Christ, don't we, in these verses. And verse 11, as Jeremiah weeps, you know, did not Christ weep over Jerusalem despite all their unbelief and hatred to him? Didn't he have the greatest, as it were, pastor's hearts? Remember what he said as he looked out over Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? And he would not. And of course, no one experienced sorrow like Christ. Remember what Isaiah writes, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And, you know, in a sense, can we not say the same here? Can we think of an example of greater sorrow than Christ's? Can you think of anything that equals Calvary? And you notice what it says there in, in verse 13, For thy breach is great like the sea, there, there, there on Calvary, the sea of God's fury breached and came over him. And it swept upon his soul. And we have to say, don't we, there's nothing in all of his history that parallels the suffering and the grief and the anguish of Christ. Jeremiah says there at the end of verse 13, who can heal thee? There was no healing for Christ. But of course for us as sinners... There's the balm of Gilead, isn't it? There, Christ, he's the one who heals us. Remember what Isaiah says again, it's with his stripes we are healed. There's no healing for Jerusalem, no healing for Christ, but for sinners there's a glorious healing in our Saviour. But Jeremiah then moves on in verse 14 to then speak about these false prophets that were in the city. And he says, he talks about how they've seen vain things here and foolish things. In other words, they were deluded. They had preached lies to the people. Their messages were full of deceit. You recall how they said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And the prophets here, Jeremiah particularly upbraids them for not discovering thine iniquity. He says, look, in other words, you've not preached about sin. Apparently, uh, I haven't uh, read it myself, but another commentary points this out, that the Syriac version renders the verse in this way. It says, They have not disclosed to thee thy sins, so that thou mightest repent. It says, that's what, the, that's what the false prophets haven't done. They have not opened up to you your sins, so that you can turn from your sins and repent of your sins. The false prophets haven't done that. That's the sense of the words here. They failed to point out their disobedience. They failed to point out the root of the problem. They hadn't warned the people and shown them the consequences of sin. If they had, you notice he says here, you would have turned away this captivity in verse 14. If only you had discovered the people's iniquity and caused them to repent, this whole thing would have been abandoned. And of course, here's one of the marks of false prophets in every age, isn't it? Here's something that we should look for in, in a preacher. Do they expose sin? Do they preach about iniquity? False teachers rarely like to speak of wickedness. Instead, sin is minimised and it's marginalised. But faithful preaching discovers sin and it, in turn it points people to Christ and to repentance and faith. 
Of course, this is true today, isn't it? Sadly, there's so many men, even popular men in Christianity, and you'll very rarely, if ever, hear them speak of sin. It's not popular, is it? It doesn't draw crowds. But of course, we have to preach the law as well as grace. And these false prophets in Jeremiah's day hadn't done that. Of course, the problem of preaching, not preaching about sin, is that you don't have a need to preach about a saviour. If you don't preach about the need of forgiveness, then you have no reason to point to Christ. And these false prophets here had preached a lie. They had seen vain and foolish things. And now in verses 15 and 16, such is the destruction that as people walk by, they now just laugh. The enemies of Jerusalem, they just wag their heads. They hiss and gnash their teeth. Some can't quite believe this is the same city that they used to pass. Some, some of them, the enemies particularly, they rejoice. This is the day that they, they longed for. You know, they, uh, they look on and they're, and they're so glad to see this, this city destroyed. And again, as you read those verses, again, you can't help but see Christ, can you? Uh, when he was on the cross, the crowd reproached him and they wagged their heads and they gnashed their teeth. They mocked him and they cast accusations at him. Christ's enemy rejoiced over him, didn't they? It was the day that they had been looking for. They thought that they had swallowed up uh, Christ and defeated him. Those verses there in verse 16, we have swallowed her up. Certainly this is the day that we looked for. We have found, we have seen it. But verse 17, the prophet comes back to what he'd started with in those opening verses and this is the Lord's work. As the people laugh and mock as they rejoice over the city, this is the Lord's doing. Verse 17, the Lord hath done that which he hath devised. He hath fulfilled his word that he had commanded in the days of old. And Jeremiah says, look, that the Lord promised that he would do this to his city. He promised that if the people rebelled and forsook him, this is exactly what would happen. You can read the cursings in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. You can read all the warnings of Isaiah and, of course, Jeremiah himself, that if the people didn't turn, the Lord would do this. And God always fulfills his words. And again, we can say this, can't we, too, concerning his son. All the way through the Old Testament, the great plan of redemption was being unfolded piece by piece. And part of that great plan, of course, was the bruising of Christ and the agony of the Messiah, the suffering of his servants. And of course, we can now say, can't we, looking back, the Lord have done that which he have devised. He carried out the plan of salvation. These words remind me of um, Psalm 118. Just turn to Psalm 118 and verse 22 and and following. Where we have sort of a similar sort of language in verse 22. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And the sense is there, isn't it? This is, the, this is all being planned and purposed. 
The stone which the builders rejected, that's the one that God has chosen to be the headstone of the corner. And it's the Lord's doing. The Lord hath done that which he hath devised. And he fulfilled it all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course we praise God, don't we, that every last jot and tittle of that plan that was slowly unfolded was fulfilled perfectly in our Saviour. But moving on to the final verses here of, the, of this lamentation, it's, it turns more into a, an attitude of prayer towards the end. In verse 19 particularly, Jeremiah encourages the people to pray. He tells them to arise and to cry out in the night, to pour out their hearts like water, this affliction that uh, should drive them to prayer. And of course, affliction that drives us to prayer is a good affliction. And uh, he tells them they needed to lift up their hearts as really in a sense as well as their hands. Prayer here, it implies humility. It shows a, a dependence and also an expectancy. And in verse 20, this is what Jeremiah then does himself. And he then now prays, Behold, O Lord, he says. And in these verses he, he longs for God to look on at what he has done. He tells him to, there in verse 20, Behold, O Lord, and consider to whom thou hast done this. This is, this is your people, this is your city. Will you not look on? And of course we see that attitude so often in the Psalms, don't we? How David so often says to the Lord, you know, Lord, this is for your glory, for your sake. Can you not, will you not come and help? And then we see here Jeremiah sort of showing the same thing. He longs for God to look on. And he mentions that in, in these closing verses, every kind of person that's been affected, women and children. We see priest and prophet. We see young and old virgins and young men. Everyone's been affected. None had escaped God's awful uh, judgment upon the city. And so Jeremiah ends this, this second ABC, as it were, of mourning with this prayer to God. And, of course, it's a good reminder to us, isn't it, that we should, in times of affliction, turn to the Lord. It's no use just lamenting our affliction. It's no use just crying over the situation. We should turn those cries and those afflictions into meaningful prayer. And ask the Lord to look and consider and to answer our petitions. And so that's what Jeremiah does here. But as I, as I close this evening, there's one thing that I want to just draw your attention to as a, in a sense as a way of application uh, tonight. And it's something that I haven't drawn out as we've gone through this. But I think that as we, as we read this lament, as you look at it as a whole, it shows to us, I think, that there should be a longing in our hearts for a for the heavenly Zion. There should be a longing in our hearts for the heavenly Zion. As we, go, as we went through this lament, perhaps you noticed that so often Jeremiah refers to this place as a place of beauty, as a place of glory. Look at verse 1, for example. He talks there about the beauty of Israel. In verse 15, when the people passed by, they said, you know, this was the city that was once called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth. We have this, uh, as you go through the book of Lamentations, this continual reference to the, the glory and the former beauty and the joy of the old Jerusalem. 
And uh, it was an unparalleled glory. Of course, you, now you could write over the top of it, Ichabod, couldn't you? The glory has departed. But nonetheless, in former days, it was a glorious place. And as I was thinking about this lamentation, it got me thinking. And the, and the conclusion that I came to as I was reading it was that if the former beauty of the old Zion was to be mourned over, shouldn't the beauty of the new Zion now be longed for? If he, was gonna, if he was mourning over all the things that were lost, how much more as God's people today should we look for and long for the joys of heaven? The old Jerusalem was definitely beautiful, but the heavenly Zion is far more glorious. If Jeremiah des- you know, desired to see her glory restored, how much more should we desire to reach the new Jerusalem? There should be such a, a longing in our hearts to see the glory and the beauty and the joy of Emmanuel's land. The old gospel song says, doesn't it, this world is not our home, we're just a passing through. And yet I think we can forget that in a sense, and we forget and we don't have that desire and that longing. And it has a glory that can never depart. There's a, it's the place of true perfection and true beauty. I mean, the old Jerusalem, they may have said this is the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth, but there's nowhere like heaven. We don't have time to look at this in in detail, but if you were to turn over to Revelation and to chapter 21 and 22, and I'm sure you know this is that wonderful description of what heaven is like. But if you were to take Revelation 21 and 22 and you were to take the time just to compare it with Lamentations chapter 2, you'll see there's a wonderful contrast Uh, In these chapters, Jeremiah weeps over this city, but in heaven we're told that every tear shall be wiped away. Verse 4 of 21, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. He speaks of death in Lamentations chapter 2, the children swooning in the streets, but there'll be no more death in the heavenly Zion. There's so much sorrow and lamentation in this chapter, but in Revelation 21, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And you go all the way through, Jeremiah speaks about the violent taking away of the tabernacle, which symbolised the presence of God. But John says here, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And there's no temple in heaven because God is the temple. Jeremiah speaks of praying in the night. We saw there in verse 19, arise and pray in the night, but in heaven there is no night. There's no time of darkness. There's only perpetual day because the Lord is the light. Jeremiah speaks of children swooning in the streets for thirst and hunger, but the streets of the heavenly Zion are paved with gold, pure gold, and anyone who's a thirst may drink of the water of life freely. Jeremiah speaks of the city being polluted. We see that uh, early on in the chapter in verse 2. This this place had been defiled. But what do we read about the heavenly Zion? We read that there is nothing allowed to enter which will defile it. He speaks of the breach in verse 13 being great like the sea, but in heaven there is no sea. It's wonderful figurative language, but do you see the contrast? 
And friends, we need to ask ourselves tonight, do we sincerely desire to be in this heavenly Zion? Jeremiah looks out and he laments the old glory departed, but do we long for the new glory? Do we long to be where Christ is? And I ask that because I think that we too often can become comfortable here, can't we? We can be very settled in this world, very happy with the things of this world, but we shouldn't be. We should have constantly in our mind that every night we pitch, as it were, our earthly tent, a day's march nearer home. And how we should long and desire more and more for heaven. And so as we read this lament and as we go on through Uh, The book of Lamentations, I think we should see this more and more. Yes, the old Jerusalem's glory is departed, but we long for now and we desire that heavenly Jerusalem.